Hi, uh, welcome to the Anesthesia on Air podcast uh, here on day three, Thursday uh, at Anesthesia 2023. Can you uh, tell us your name and why you're here at the conference? Sure, my name's uh, Alan Cena. I'm a consultant anesthetist at the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide and a researcher at the University of Adelaide. And I've had a long-standing interest in hypnosis and communication uh, because I was a terrible communicator. And uh, we were very lucky at the Women's and Children's in Adelaide to have one of the world's leading hypnotherapists uh, embedded in the hospital uh, using hypnosis techniques with children for things like dialysis catheters and... um, uh, well, intravenous drips and with pain and phobia and so on and he was able to help uh, thousands of children uh, with those techniques and the way he communicated with them your the topic of your talk here at the conference um is on hypnocommunication and the nocebo effect amongst yeah. other things can yeah. you give us a quick definition of those terms as you see them so um, when patients uh, see an anaesthetist, they're generally pretty anxious. And when people are anxious, they tend not to be able to think clearly. And they often start focusing internally as they get overwhelmed by the situation they're in. And when they get uh, this internal focus and become absorbed, uh, they become very... Uh, talented, if you like, in using uh, suggestion uh, and responding in a non-volitional way uh, to communications. Now, these can be, in in some senses, they're vulnerable to negative suggestions, which can actually worsen pain and anxiety. But at the same sense, uh, they can be given therapeutic suggestions, which enhance healing, recovery, and make things a lot more comfortable for people, allow them to eat and drink after their surgery, for example, and rather think of surgery as injury and disability. Uh, They can think of it as healing, recovery, everything settling down, and mobilising, getting back to the usual activities. In your talk, you described how children are are different fundamentally in many ways to adults, and and how that informs hypnocommunication and the nocebo effect. Can you... Give us a sense of what that means in practice. Yeah, look, children are same, same, but different. Um, Below the age of 10, as a group, they're much more responsive to suggestion. They're living in this make-believe world, which is very real to them. And that can be utilised to uh, in in their therapeutic experience uh, to allow them to uh, experience things in a very different way uh, than a lot of adults can, for example. Uh, the nocebo effect, uh, which hypnotherapists call uh, negative suggestions, um, is really uh, nocebo is really the evil twin of placebo. It's all the side effects and bad things that can happen with a medical intervention that are non-pharmacological. Uh, and the placebo effect is all the therapeutic things that can happen that are non-pharmacological. Uh, so nocebo is pretty ubiquitous in a lot of hospitals. Paediatric anaesthetists um, generally recognise uh, a lot of in- intuitively engage with children in a hypnotic way uh, because that's how children respond. Uh, so they're generally uh, very able to do this. It's part of their practice, but it's 
usually gain through many years of experience rather than having language structures that they can teach trainees to do relatively quickly without all the trial and error uh, of, of a full career. And for your part, it sounds like you benefited by having a hypnotherapist actually at your hospital. Yes, well, and also sharing an office with a very intuitive communicator who didn't understand at all what she was doing to be intuitive. But you can deconstruct the communication uh, in a way that allows you to teach it to other people so that they can become intuitive. And that's certainly how I learned uh, my communication. You describe the... Uh, contrast between the anaesthetist's priorities as being in descending order, safety, comfort and control, whereas the patient's priorities being inverted, primarily comfort, uh, (laughs) sorry, control, then comfort, and then lastly safety. How does that work? Yeah, it was, look, patients um, often are very concerned of feeling out of control. No children um, don't have the concern initially. They hate feeling out of control. They want to be the boss. They want to be the boss of their own bodies. They want to be able to tell their body what to do rather than their body telling them what to do. So if you can give them the control that allows them to do that, and you can do that using their make-believe world, they suddenly find they can experience things in a way where they are in control. And they have choices even where logically there are no choices. There are choices there in the way we communicate. Uh, which allows, again, uh, a sense of control of what's happening. Another thing you mentioned about is the preeminence of listening. Yes. Now, I'm, I'm sure uh, a lot of clinicians will say, well, I listen all the time. I'm, I'm great at this. I, I nod and I smile. I, I, I say the right words. How, how does, what does great listening actually entail in your view? Um, listening involves identifying the words and letting the patient know you've heard the words correctly, Uh, trying to deduce meaning from what's being said and then reflecting back that meaning to ensure you've, you've, you've understood the meaning behind what you've been told. And children are very good at saying, no, no, uh, I didn't mean that at all. Uh, I actually said this and then, and then you can uh, again ask more and more questions until you both seem to have a common understanding of what's being said. Is there any way in which an anaesthetist has to be especially good at listening in that sense? It's a very, it's a skill that can be learnt relatively quickly and relatively easily. Uh, we're just never really taught this at medical school. I mean, everyone says how important listening is, but no one actually explains how to do it. Uh, so we we just think of it in the in these four ways uh, where we actually listen for, for the actual words, meaning, and reflect back to the patient. We've heard the words and we've understood their meaning, and they can correct us if that's required. How might to use a word you t- used in your talk? A clinician sabotage uh, that conversation through language or. Uh, or tone. So, for example, if a child's not feeling sick and uh, someone gives them a sick bowl to vomit into, a proportion of children will start feeling nauseous and vomit into it. So that's called a nonverbal cue, uh, a, su- a nonverbal suggestion to vomit. Uh, similarly, if you ask a child their pain score and they're feeling perfectly comfortable, uh, some children will start feeling pain. Or it, if they are feeling pain already, it'll make it worse. 
So it's it's important to address pain as pain if the child mentions it first. So if something's hurting or sore, or they've got pain and they've told you this, then yes, you have to, ex- you, you say, okay, you're telling me you've got pain, you're telling me it's hurting, this is what we're going to do about it. Whereas if they're comfortable and you introduce the word pain, by definition, that's injury and disability rather than healing and recovery. So we just want to focus. Surgery really is all about uh, not tissue damage. It's all about uh, dealing with a problem, rectifying it, and then allowing the patient to heal and recover as safely and comfortably as possible. And that's the goal, and that's where we want to focus patients. What are the, I suppose, the practical benefits, or, or, or what, what, what? Admittedly, this is anecdata, but but what have you seen in terms of your practice? Uh, the change in patient outcomes, um, pain levels, and so forth from the approaches you've started to adopt. So certainly, patients have become much more engaged with their healthcare, um, and they are able to actively participate as part of the team, if you like. Uh, with the doctors and the nurses in what's happening with them. And they understand also when they start experiencing uh, these changes in perception that they actually do have control and they can change things uh, that are allowing them to then leave hospital perhaps a bit sooner than they might do otherwise and actually feel more comfortable as things are healing. Was there anything you didn't have time to cover in your talk that you think is pertinent here? I think one of the ways of building rapport with patients and trust is always asking permission before you do anything. So rather than telling them that you're going to just examine them, uh, you can say, is it okay if I just pop the stethoscope on the top part of your chest? Would that be okay for you? Or where would you like me to put the the stethoscope and give them a, a choice so they've got control over what's happening? And as they start... Um, saying yes to each of these things, uh, they build rapport and they build focus and then all sorts of interesting things can happen with how they can then change their perceptions and behaviours. So what's the main takeaway you'd like our listeners to uh, to consider? I think the primary takeaway is recognising the ubiquitous nature of nocebo communications. There's a lot of negative language around procedures in hospital And uh, it's really important to explain to patients why they're having a procedure done rather than trying to predict the experience, which is usually predicted in a negative way. Uh, So if we can just think about the minding, minding our language to reduce these negative suggestions, nocebo communications, and thinking how we can communicate in a therapeutic way, I think that's the single take home message. Alan, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. 